Hey there, welcome to the Rim Church Podcast. We're so glad you found us. The Rim Church is based in San Antonio, Texas, and we believe in loving Jesus, building family, and changing the world. Wherever you find yourself today, we trust that it is not by accident that you're listening to this message, and we believe that God has something to speak to you right where you are. For more information on what we're all about, go ahead and visit us at therim.church or follow us on Instagram and Facebook. We hope you enjoy the message. Well, good morning, one and all. It was really good to take communion together. It's a blessing to do that all together as a church family, and it's a, a privilege for me to be here with you this morning. I'm excited about it, and I, I, hope that, uh, I hope that what I say doesn't totally stink and that you stay engaged with me. You think we can do that? That would be good. So we're in this series called Rooted and Renegade, and I was asked to preach on the doctrine of God today in 30 minutes. It's a pretty daunting task, i got to tell you that. I thought, holy guacamole, God, what do we do with this one? And he said, you know what, let's just focus on three of my attributes. And that's what we're going to do today is three of God's attributes so that we can get to know him better and how we can then relate to him better. So what I'm going to ask you to do is like I'm riding the bus, I'm your tour guide, so climb on a board. I'm going to take you on this tour of these three attributes before we park the bus at the end of the message. Can we do that together? All right, that's what I like to hear. So Donna and I, we got married a little bit over 30 years ago. Um, yeah, that's right. Be excited. And on our honeymoon, we flew into Miami, and then we took a boat, and we went on a cruise. And see, back then, we didn't have all these images that we get to see now on the Internet. All we had to, to look at the world around us was a few encyclopedias, uh, maybe Jacques Cousteau, maybe Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. That's all I had. So when we got to the first island, and we were going to go swim, I knew that there's probably something really cool under the water, but I didn't know exactly what it was I was looking for. And as we get to the first island, we go out into the water, and I put on the mask. I could see the refraction of the light, and I could tell that there was something under there. But as soon as I put the mask on, I stuck my head just a half an inch under water, a whole new world opened up. It was absolutely stunning. I saw a conch and stingrays. I saw Nemo and Dory and all these great things swimming around. It was absolutely fantastic. And I think that's a lot of what the kingdom of God is like for us. We know it's there. We know it exists. But we haven't worn the right lens to look at it. And we've not actually taken the step and action of faith to stick our head into the water and take a deep, long look at it. My early years of Christianity was very much like that. I was learning a lot of propositional truth, but I knew there was more to actually experience. I wanted to experience more of God. So I started asking the question, what is God really like? How can I really relate to him? And I think that's probably a question a lot of us have, isn't it? What is God really like? How do I actually relate to him on a deep, intimate level? I think oftentimes we sit around and we wonder, well, is God upset with me? He seems silent. What did I do wrong? And I think a lot of those thoughts we have of God comes from our growing up years. Depends on our moms and our dads and how they treated us, coaches, teachers, whatever it is. It influences the way we think about God. And maybe even some of us, we know what God is like propositionally, but our experience is much different. and We don't know why. The good news is that the Bible says that we can know God. 
The Bible even says that God wants us to know him deeply and intimately because the truth of the matter is we can't trust God if we don't know God. And before we get into some of these propositional truths and how it then becomes experiential to us, I'm going to make a very definitive statement. And it is this. God is not a doctrine. God is a person. I'll say that again. God is not a doctrine. He is a person. And is to be related to as such. That's the kind of God that he is. J.I. Packard said this. We are cruel to ourselves if we try to live in this world without knowing the God whose world it is and who runs it. The world becomes a strange, mad, painful place for those who don't know about God. So we're going to talk about that this morning. So let's talk about what does God know. Hebrews 4.13 says this. Nothing in all of creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare to him to whom we must give an account. The Bible says that nothing in creation is hidden from him. Psalm 147.5 says, his understanding has no limit. What we're talking about is what theologians call God's omniscience, which simply means he knows everything. There's nothing hidden from him. He knows it all. Nothing surprises him. Nothing takes him where he doesn't realize what's going on. He knows everything. Never surprised. Never has a problem that he can't solve. So if we look at that and we think about him knowing everything, what's the scope of that? What's the scope of God's omniscience? There's a few things I'm going to clue us in on before we get even deeper into this. First off, God knows all about himself. Now, you don't know all about yourself, and neither do I. That's why we have a lot of the problems that we have, right? God knows all about himself. God also knows all about creation. The Bible says in Genesis 1.21 that after God had made everything, he said, it is good. He knew everything that he made. He looked at it all. He looked at every rock, every tree, every plant, every blade of grass, every fish, every animal. He looked at the stars in the sky, and he says, I know everything about that, and it is good. He knows about everything. God also knows about history and everything about history. He knows what has happened, what is happening, and what's going to happen. He knows everything that happened in the past, everything that's happening now, everything that's going to happen in the future. Matter of fact, he also knows everything that could have happened in the past and didn't, and everything that might happen in the future and won't. God knows everything through space and time. He knows it all. So that's the scope of who he is. And since God is omniscient, the question then is begged, what does he then know about you? What does God know about you? The Bible says in Psalm 139 that he knows everything about you, that he is deeply, deeply acquainted with you. Matter of fact, in Matthew 10, it says that he is so deeply acquainted with you that he even knows the number of hairs on your head. For some of you, it's a pretty easy count, right? Some of us a little bit harder. Some is an easy count. So what does that mean? It means, first off, that God knows about every single fault and every single failure that you have. He knows all of my heart, all of my faults, all of my failures. Psalm 69, 5. My sins, O oh God, are not hidden from you. You know how foolish I've been. God knows everything about us. As a matter of fact, sometimes we want to forget his omniscience because we're embarrassed by it. But nothing's hidden from God's sight. He knows all of my faults and all of my failures. I don't have any secrets, and neither do you. God knows it all. 
And foolishly, I think what we do sometimes, when we blow it, when we sin, we try to hide it, we take it down the hallway, throw it in the closet, and lock the door. But God knows what's behind every single locked door. He knows every single thing. There's nothing that we ever say or think that's off the record. He knows it all. Proverbs 5.21 says, For a man's way are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all of his paths. You always have an audience. You always have an audience. But the good news is that God isn't shocked by your sin. He's not shocked by mine. He says, you know what? I knew that was going to happen. And not only did I know this was going to happen, I know why it happened. And he's not shocked by it. He knows why we ended up in the situation that we ended up in. So my response to that then should be honesty. Just being honest with God. The Bible says that if we say that we have no sin, then the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, right? That's it. We just admit. Say, God, you're right and I was wrong. It's out in the open. He's not shocked by it, and he knows. He knows all of my faults and all of my failures, yet he still loves me, and he still loves you. So he knows my faults and my failures. He also knows my feelings and my frustrations. Psalm 31, 7. You, God, have listened to all of my troubles and have seen the crisis of my soul. Now, some of you think nobody knows what I'm going through. Nobody knows the trouble I'm in. Nobody knows the pain I've endured. You know, maybe you're right. Maybe a lot of people don't know that, but God does. God has seen the crisis of your soul. Psalm 56, 8 says, You know how troubled I am, and you have kept a record of all of my tears. There's no hurt that goes unnoticed by God. He sees everything. So what do you do? What does God feel? What does God feel when he knows how you're feeling? This is one of the greatest verses to know how he feels. Psalm 103, 13 and 14 says, He is like a father to us, tender and sympathetic, for he knows what we are made of, dust. He is our creator, and the fact is that God is sympathetic to all of your hurts and pains. He knows it all. And he cares. And he understands why these things happen. He sees how everything fits together. So what do I do in response? Psalm 142. When I'm ready to give up, he knows exactly what I should do. Some of you are ready to give up. You're ready to give up on a career. You're ready to give up on a relationship. You're ready to give up on life. But God knows what you should do. He sees all of my hurts, so we give them to him. A verse I pray every single day, every single morning. 1 Peter 5, 7, cast your cares on the Lord, for he cares for you. Since he sees, we give him our hurts. Now, God also knows my future. Even before I was born, he knew what was going to happen. Psalm 139, 16, the days allotted to me had all been recorded in your book before any of them began. In a verse that maybe a lot of us are familiar with, Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, plans to give you a hope and a future. You see, the fact is that God sees our tomorrow today. He sees our tomorrows today. He knows what's going to happen. He's already seen it. And if that's true, then doesn't it make sense to go to him with all of our troubles? Because he already knows what's going to happen. Doesn't it make sense to go for them for our advice? 
to go to him for direction. Jeremiah 33.3 says, Call to me and I will answer you and I will show you great and mighty things that you don't know about. The things we don't know about, God can tell you about. When you wake up in the mornings, right before you go to work, and you get up, you spend five minutes, ten minutes reading your Bible. You spend another five or ten minutes praying. And you simply say, God, I don't know what this day holds, but I know you hold the day. I don't know what challenges I'm going to face. I don't know what dilemmas I'm going to come across. I don't know if it's going to be a good day or a bad day, but you do. So I'm going to ask for your wisdom in advance. I'm going to ask for your direction in advance because you already know. He knows my future. God also knows my fears. He knows everything that gets you uptight. Everything. And probably the primary thing for everyone in this room that gets most people uptight is finances. Right? Yeah, everybody can nod. That's true. Jesus says this. He says, don't worry, saying, what shall I eat or what shall I wear? For the pagans run after these things. But your heavenly Father, he knows that you need them. Do you ever think that God is unaware of your bills that came in? He knows. But what do I do? I start to worry about those things. And worrying is just me trying to play God. It's me taking from God what should be his and trying to apply it to myself. And it doesn't help. So what is my response to that? I just don't worry. Philippians 4, 6. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Don't panic. Pray. That's what he's telling us to do. He sees our needs, our every single need. And we never have to beg for his attention. You know why? Because you already have it. You already have his attention. You already have it. There's no problem too big for him to meet. He can solve your problems and my problems all at the same time. So he knows my fears. But you know what else he knows? He knows my faithfulness. He knows your faithfulness. Every time I do the right thing, every time I choose not to sin when I could sin, every time when I could gossip, I don't gossip, every time I say an encouraging word, every time I say something that builds other people up, every thought that I have, God sees my faithfulness. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them, because then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, he's going to reward you. The fact is, every good deed is going to go rewarded. No matter how insignificant or small, it is going to go rewarded. Because God sees your faithfulness. He sees every single part of it. Every compliment you give your kids, every compliment you give your spouse, every kind thought, Every time you decide not to gossip when you're tempted to gossip. Every time when you don't sin when you're tempted to sin. He sees it all. And he rewards you for it. Every time you think positively instead of negatively, God sees it and he will reward you. Now if you would for a minute, imagine yourself in a giant auditorium and you're on the stage. And you're acting out your life. There's one person in the audience. Just one. And that one person is God. He's standing there giving you a standing ovation, clapping, seeing every good thing that you've done. He says, that's my boy. That's my girl. I see it. You had that great thought. You had that great action. And it's going to be rewarded. You see, you get to live your life to an audience of one. 
Think about that. Other people's opinions of you, it really doesn't matter. You get to live your life to an audience of one. And he's the only one that counts. Character is what you do in the dark. Your reputation is what everybody sees. But character is what you do in the dark, who you really are. And God sees, and he rewards you for your faithfulness. He says, I see it, and I'm proud of you. That's his omniscience. So we're going to shift gears on this bus. We're going to second gear. And if I was to ask you, where is God? Some of you would probably say heaven. Some of you say in my heart. Neither one of those is wrong, but it's not entirely correct either. Not entirely correct either. The Bible says that God is all over the place. David says in Psalm 139, in verse 7, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn and I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me and will hold me fast. God never has to go anywhere. He is everywhere, all at the same time. He never has to go anywhere. Jeremiah 23, 24, he says, I am the God who is everywhere and not in one place. Do you not know that I'm everywhere in heaven and on earth? There's no point in the universe where God is not. So we're talking about what theologians call his omnipresence. He is everywhere. He fills every place and every space. There's no point in the universe where God is not. So what difference does that make to my life? What difference does it make to your life? It means God is your companion, your comforter, your confidence, your counselor. He's with you all the time. And I wish we had time. I, I, I kind of wish I'd have just done the message on this one attribute of God. It's so much to unpack. But I'm going to give you a few clues right now on how to practice the presence of God. And I hope to at the end of this message is to bring us to a point where we understand the full presence of God in us. But first, how do we practice the presence of God? For some of you, when I come in here every Sunday, I make some assumptions. One of my assumptions I make is that most people in here follow Jesus. That's why you're here. Most people in here follow Jesus. So I'm talking to a big group of people who already believe. But I also realize there's some people in here who don't. And for those of you who don't, I am so proud of you for just coming week after week and just trying to figure this whole thing out. Who is God? What does it mean to follow him? Who is Jesus? And I'm so proud of you for trying to learn this and figure it out and take some steps. And if you want to start practicing the presence of God, and that's the category you fall in, the first thing is just to accept him into your life, to believe in him. To allow him to take you from going the world's way, going this way, and do a complete 180. And now I'm going this way, I'm going God's way. And all that that entails. And if you have more questions about that, ask the people that you came with. Ask somebody that you see that you think might know the answer. Find out what that means. Because the Bible says that what Jesus has done for us on the cross has made it possible to come into the presence of God and into this freedom and into his confidence. So that's the first thing you can do. Another thing that you should do for those who believe it's just to be quiet. We practice the presence of God by being quiet. I have a good friend in uh, Minnesota, pastor up there, 
And he says it a little bit more, more uh, direct. He says, you know, Kelly, sometimes I just have to learn to shut up. <laughs> I just have to be quiet. I need to shut up. We need to close our mouth and don't talk. And I believe why a lot of people don't really feel the presence of God is because there's too much noise. There's too much distraction. We have too much going on around us. In Psalms, it says to be still and know that I am God. Pascal said, most of man's problems come from his inability to sit still. We just have to learn to sit still. That's it. Learn to listen, to tune in. Don and I have gotten into this habit, what John Eldridge calls a benevolent detachment. And it's learning to let go of everyone and everything just for moments throughout the day. And it's a practice that I do throughout the day where I just have to reorient myself, reorganize my thoughts. And I just say, God, right now I let go of everyone and everything to go to the depths of where you reside here at the core of my being and my heart. And I just want to sit quiet for a minute or two. doesn't take long just to reorient and reorganize my thoughts with you. And then I go on about the day. I just keep going after that. So I take these little breaks. The Bible says in James 4.8 to draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So as you tune in to him, you begin to be aware of his presence. Now there's a dichotomy here. I'm just saying be quiet, but now I'm going to tell you we also need to talk to him about everything. It's both and. Talk to God about everything. First Thessalonians says pray without ceasing. Do this continually. And you think, good grief, how do I do that? Do I have to get in the lotus position all day long? I don't know. What does that mean? No, it just means talk to him about everything. It doesn't matter what it is. You wake out in the morning, you walk out the front door, and you say, God, it's a beautiful day. Or this summer, you walk out and you say, holy cow, God, it's really hot and humid. And you know you could change this if you wanted to. Just saying. You just talk to him about everything. You get in the car and you say, oh, God, I'm low on gas. My daughter ran out of gas yesterday, so it's kind of funny. You say, God, I'm low on gas. Or you're driving to work, and you say, God, thank you for these things in my life. It's just talk to him about anything and everything. That's all it means. It's not really that difficult. Psalm 62.9 says to trust him at all times and pour your heart out to him. So you just maintain this ongoing conversation. And then another great way to practice the presence of God is to develop the habit of praise. To praise just means to thank God for who he is and what he's done for you. Psalm 100, verse 4, says to enter his gates with thanksgiving, enter his courts with praise. We move into this awareness as God when we start to praise him. And it looks different from everybody. Mindy, she's going to sing when she enters into his presence with praise. If I sing, it sounds like a screeching peacock. It's just absolutely horrible. So what I do, and I enter into his courts with praise, I tend to just repeat, I love you, God. I love you. I love you. I worship you. I trust you. I give myself over to you. I declare that you're good. Thank you for these things in my life. I praise you for them. And it starts to reorient your thoughts, and you enter into his presence. That's God's omnipresence. We're going to shift into third gear now on this bus. Did you know that the sun produces more energy in one second than has been used in the history of the world? It's a lot of power. 
Matter of fact, it said that the sun can burn at, it current, at the current rate for another 30 billion years. That is a lot of power, but not nearly as powerful as the one who created the sun. Not nearly as powerful. Jeremiah 32, 17 says, Sovereign Lord, you had made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. This is what theologians call God's omnipotence. God is almighty. He has unlimited power. He never gets tired. He never gets frustrated. He, everything that he does, he does easily. He can answer your prayers and create the universe all in the same breath. He is all-powerful. He can do it all. For me, I've been fortunate enough to be able to travel the world. And of all the places I've ever been, Colorado is my favorite. And it's not because they sell dope, okay? I see the majesty of the Rockies and the power it took to create those and how beautiful it is. And I really connect well with God's power there. And I see it. For some of you, it may be something different. Psalm 19 it says, the heavens are telling the glory of God. They are a marvelous display of his craftsmanship. Day and night, they keep telling about God. Every moment, all of creation is a witness to the power of God. Every moment, creation is a witness to the power of God. And then we look at the life of Jesus, and he displayed the power of God. He had power over nature. He made the storm stop. He talked to a tree and it withered. He turned water into wine. And not only did he have power over nature, he had power over illness and death. He healed the sick. He healed the blind. He healed the lame. He healed the disease. He raised people from the dead. He even raised himself from the dead. He has power over sin, death, and Hades. One time he even told a bunch of demons to come out of this guy and to go into a bunch of pigs. It was the first time in the history of the world that we had deviled ham. God is powerful, isn't he? He is powerful. He is awesome. The amazing thing is that God wants to share his power with you. Ephesians 1.20 says, I pray that you will begin to understand how incredibly great his power is to help those who believe in him. The same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead. That is amazing. He wants to share his power with me and with you. He wants to share that with us. Do you feel powerless? Do you feel like a victim? a victim of society, a victim of circumstances, a victim of other people? Do you feel like you don't have it all together? Do you feel powerless? God says, I want to give you my power in you. And the good news is that he makes it available to us. So you don't have to feel powerless. Philippians 2.13 says, For God is at work within you, giving you the will and the power to achieve his purpose. God gives you power. But the truth is, sometimes we get tired. Sometimes we get weary. But God says, I'm going to give you the power to keep going. I've been watching this series on Netflix. I think it's called The Pacific. It's awesome because there's a lot of violence, and I like that. But it's about this group of Marines that are fighting through the South Pacific in World War II, fighting the Japanese. And they go into the jungles, and they're fighting for days at a time. But they get tired, and they get weary from fighting a war, and they have to fall back to get rest and recuperation. But God never gets tired, and he never gets weary. Because the truth of the matter is, we're in a war. We are truly in a war. 
There is good and there is evil. And it's very true that our life in God is full of beauty and rescue and adventure and all these great things. But it's also true that we are in a world at war and we get tired and we get weary. Isaiah 40 says that the Lord is an everlasting God. He never grows tired or weary. He strengthens those who are weak and tired. Those who trust in the Lord for help will find their strength renewed. What a great verse. He will give me the power to persist because God's power is unlimited. He never gets tired. He never gets weary. He never gets sick of hearing your prayers. never gets sick of answering them either. He is never tired, and he will give you his strength. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. God says, I want to give you my power to persist. God says, I promise to re-energize those who are tired and weary. I will give it to you. But guess what? This part you won't like. It's not automatic. It's not automatic. So how do I have this power? See, I think most Christians don't experience the power of God. And they live just as tired and just as defeated as non-believers because they've not learned how to key in to the power of God. I'm going to give you two quick, easy steps to key in to the power of God because it's not ambiguous. God says, I'll give you my power, and I'm going to tell you how to give you my power. I'm going to say, this is how it works. That's good news because God likes to tell us what to do. So what do I do? Two steps. First off, to receive God's power, you need to believe in faith. The key to personal power in your life, the power of God, is faith. Nothing else. It's just faith. Mark 9, 23, everything is possible for him who believes. Everything. Matthew 9, 29, according to your faith, it will be done to you. God works according to faith. And since God has unlimited power, and we don't experience that power, it tells me it's because of my own unbelief. But in faith, I receive that power because there's no problem too big for God and there's nothing that he cannot handle. No request that I can give him that he won't answer. So I believe in faith. Step two, you act in faith. You must step out in advance. Step out in advance before that power is released. God wants you to take action even before you feel anything. So you're saying, Kelly, really? I'm supposed to step out in power even though I don't have the power so that I get the power? Yep, <laughs> that's exactly what you're supposed to do. You step out in faith before it's ever released. You step out and see what God does and he'll provide. Because faith is believing something is so, even when it's not so, so that it becomes so because God said so, amen? That's what it is. That's what it is. I don't wait for a feeling. I never wait for a feeling. If I only pray when I feel like it, well, guess what? The devil's going to make it. Why well, never feel like praying? But I do what I know is right. I do what I've made a commitment to. I step out in faith, and then I receive that power. Immaturity is living by feelings. Maturity is living by commitments. That's what he's saying to do. The Bible says in Joshua 3 that when the priests put their feet in the water, the Jordan River will stop flowing. Guess what? It didn't stop flowing before the feet went in the water. And once it did, it stopped. They stepped out in faith. They acted in faith. 
So what's something really practical with that? I think something really practical is when you come home from work tomorrow and you're exhausted and you're tired and all you want to do is go home, sit in your favorite chair and watch TV. You don't want to talk to your kids. You don't want to talk to your spouse. You just want to say, leave me alone. Instead of doing that, on your way home, I suggest you take this little pill called Isaiah 40:31. <laughs> it says, they wait, those that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall play with their kids and not be faint. They shall engage their spouse and not be tired. Before you get out of the car and you go into the house, you just take a minute and you say, well, God, I'm tired. I don't feel like going in and engaging. And in order for me to do that, I need your strength. I need your power to make this happen. And then you go out and you act in faith and you act as if you got the power before you got the power so that you get the power. Because the truth of the matter is, when you get inside that house, you only got a few hours left with your family. And the harder truth is, you only have a few years left or they move out of the house. So if you're going to engage, you need God's power to re-energize you. And it's that simple. God, I believe in faith. I'm going to say it and then I'm going to act it. And you're going to give me what I need. You know, another practical application, if I'm being honest, I've been sick all weekend long, running a fever, sore throat, not feeling very good. But I say, God, this has come more than something on paper for me today. I'm going to come up here like I've got the power, even though I don't feel the power, so that I get the power. And I feel pretty darn energized right now because that's what God has done. Whoever has this mic next, I hope you don't get my sickness. So what does all this mean? What does all this mean? God's omniscience, his omnipresence, his omnipotence. What does it mean for you? It means that the kingdom is much closer than you ever imagined. I mentioned before I had to put on the right lens and take the action of putting my face a half inch under water and a whole new world opened up to me. I think God's asking each one of us this morning, put on the lens of my truth, of my grace, of my kindness, and I'm going to show you things you've never seen before. The kingdom is so much closer than you ever imagined. Because Christianity is meant to be experiential. It's true. It is a body of truth. Things we just went over. Christianity is this intellectual exercise to an extent. Absolutely. But it is not essentially that. Christianity is essentially experiential. Walking with God, knowing God. Eldridge recently said, he used this analogy. He said that the ocean covers 71% of the earth, and its salinity is similar to that of amniotic fluid, which is why we like the ocean so much. We want to go back to the womb. <laughs> But you can learn all kinds of interesting facts about the ocean. But it's nothing like jumping in. See, we can have proposition, and then there's experience. Experience of jumping in. John 17, 3. Jesus said, Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, 
in Jesus Christ whom you sent. That word know is nasco. This is Jewish idiom for the intimacy between a husband and a wife, between a man and a woman. It's this deep experiential knowledge. It's not propositional. It's experiential. Jesus said in John 10, he used the exact same word, this idea of deep intimacy, that I know the Father and the Father knows me. We are meant to draw upon God and the riches of his kingdom. And I think what is most essential for you, what's most essential for me, is to experience God. Earlier I said I hope to give you a greater understanding of God's omnipresence in you. And I hope that's what you gather here. That you are the temple of God. You are where God dwells and where he operates within this world. You are the temple of God. Your heart's the temple of God. 2 Corinthians 6.16 For we are the temple of God. Just let that sink in. Say to yourself, I am the temple of God. It's an amazing thought. An amazing thought. And if that's true, which it is, what's the implications? God's omnipresence in you. In you. And there's more. He is your source for everything. Your source for forgiveness, for kindness, for joy, for laughter, for choosing to do the right thing instead of the wrong thing. He is your source for everything. As I think about the Old Testament, the temple, the tabernacle, the temple, is an outpost of Eden. It's to show us what it's like to someday return to Eden and how ornate it was and it draws us back to the garden and with the music and the incense, everything, it was beautiful. It was an outpost of Eden. And now your heart is the temple. And again in the Old Testament, it always says that the tabernacle is filled with the glory of God. The temple is filled with the glory of God. Guess what? Your heart is filled with the glory of God. That is a truth, that your heart is filled with the glory of God. Your heart is an outpost of the temple. The glory of God fills your heart. And how would your life look different if you lived in that reality, if you learned to recognize that your heart is filled with God's presence, it's filled with the glory of God, it's meant to fill your heart, to fill your soul. Now the tabernacle, the temple, it had a pattern to it. It had the outer court, the inner court, and the Holy of Holies, which is just like Eden. You had the land of Eden, then you had the garden, then you had the tree of life. You follow that same pattern. The outer court, your body, the inner court, your soul, the Holy of Holies, your heart. God's dwelling place. The glory of God in your heart. Absolutely amazing. So the question then asks for all of us, what does that look like if we lived in such a way that our hearts were fully alive? Because that's what you need is for your heart to be fully alive. It's what the world around you needs. for your heart to be fully alive 
and imagine what we would look like as the rim. A collective group of people, just this ragtag group at this little outpost of the kingdom. If we learn to live with our hearts fully alive, what would change? Every marriage, every kid, every neighborhood, the city. The glory of God in you. As normal, I'm going to ask you to take 120 seconds. Whatever God is stirring in you today, say, God, I want to take this. I want to experience more of you. I want to put on the right lens. I want to take the action and submerge my face and see a whole new kingdom open up. And when you leave here today, you begin to put into practice, take action to that statement of faith that I want more of you, God. So take 120 seconds. Thanks so much for listening. We hope that today's message resonated with you. It's our hope that you wouldn't be merely inspired, but that you would actually be transformed by something you heard today. At The Rim Church, we always ask two questions when processing God's Word. What is God saying to you? And what are you going to do about it? We encourage you to take a moment, reflect, and then to share with a friend or send us a message. We'd love to hear what God is teaching you and how we can help you take your next step in obedience. Until we meet again, we love you, church.